Welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Hubner, and today we have episode 24, Go West, O'Tire, Go West. As always, visit the website at MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com for maps, sources, explanatory images, and more info about how you can help support the podcast. We remain free and independently produced, thanks in large part to the support of our crew members. Members get access to bonus episodes, transcripts, a timeline, so please consider becoming a member to help further support the continued production and expansion of the podcast into the future. And thanks so much to those who have already joined the crew. I salute you in the appropriate tradition of your country or preference. On to today's episode, then. Last time, we took an overview look at early Phoenician expansion in the Mediterranean. We saw how they began by integrating themselves into the settlements of more localized peoples, a perfect example coming from their presence on Sardinia, and their relations there with the Nuragic people on the island. The Phoenicians also reconnected the Eubians and other Greek predecessors with the larger Mediterranean networks. And as the Phoenicians pushed west, they did the same by plugging into various smaller trade networks themselves. We ended somewhere in the middle of the 8th century BCE, a point where the Phoenicians had begun establishing independent colonies of their own. This shift in focus can be seen as an indication that the Phoenicians were attempting to extend their control further west, the area to which our focus will also turn today. Now, even though we painted the Phoenician presence on Sardinia and in the Tyrrhenian Sea, as being a middle ground for their expansion in the Mediterranean, that area didn't prove to be the strongest or most enduring site of Phoenician presence. It was certainly integral to their initial push west, and we'll start there today before we witness the emergence of Tyre's main colony in the far west. We'll then end today with the name of the Phoenician city that arguably, left a bigger historical legacy than did Tyre herself. I'll give you exactly one guess as to which city I mean. The answer to come at the conclusion today, although I'm sure you probably guessed it already. At the risk of explaining the obvious here to start, the title of today's episode is a nod to the 19th century American phrase, Go west, young man, go west. This phrase was often attributed to author Horace Greeley. He supposedly popularized the phrase in an editorial where he praised the notion of America's westward expansion. Now, I don't exactly know how this would translate into the Phoenician tongue. I'm not even going to venture a guess, but hopefully by the end of today's episode, we will have painted a picture that reveals a very similar mindset behind the colonization efforts of Tyre and the other Phoenician cities. Before we get there, though, let's revisit a debated topic that I alluded to briefly last time. I mentioned one theory about where the city or region that the ancient people called Tarshish could have been located. Given the surmised Phoenician reach in the 10th century BCE, it seems logical to align with Josephus in placing Tarshish in Asia Minor. However, today we need to examine the second theory related to this city or region, a theory that relies more heavily on the Norris stone and on a terminological similarity. You see, The ancient name for a resource-wealthy region of southern Spain was Tartessos, and, well, 
I'll be damned if that doesn't sound astoundingly similar to Tarshish. As we said last time, much of the Phoenician expansion in the Mediterranean seems to have been driven by their desire to find natural resources. Over time, especially as we near 750 BCE, they'd begun to found colonies at resource-rich locations. Rather than try to connect the dots in a chronological way as they continued to push west, let's just talk about the regions they settled in Spain and the Iberian Peninsula. We can get a pretty good idea of why they focused on that area, and then we can fill in any other regions that we may have missed before we then set up next time's episode and its focus on that one city that you still have time to guess, but probably did already. To sum it all up here, natural resources were the main attraction of Iberia for the Phoenicians, for Tyrians in particular. So let's start with a Greek historian's take on just how wealthy the land of Tartessos was. The following quote comes from Diodorus Siculus. He was a Greek historian, remembered for writing the Universal Ancient History, Bibliotheca Historica. Now, as most Greek histories did, this one included discussions of geography. So the following portion that I'm going to read is taken from his discussion of the geography and supposed history of Europe's various regions. So with that in mind, Diodorus wrote, quote, Since we have set forth the facts concerning the Iberians, we think that it will not be foreign to our purpose to discuss the silver mines of the land. For this land possesses, we may venture to say, the most abundant and most excellent known sources of silver, and to the workers of this silver it returns great revenues. Now, in the preceding books which told of the achievements of Heracles, we have mentioned the mountains in Iberia which are known as the Pyrenees. Both in height and in size, these mountains are found to excel all others, for they stretch from the southern sea practically as far as the northern ocean, and extend for some 3,000 stadis, dividing Gaul from Iberia and Celtiberia. And since they contain many thick and deep forests, in ancient times, we are told, certain herdsmen left a fire, and the whole area of the mountains was entirely consumed. And due to this fire, since it raged continuously day after day, the surface of the earth was also burned, and the mountains, because of what had taken place, were called the Pyrenees. Furthermore, the surface of the burned land ran with much silver, and since the elementary substance out of which the silver is worked was melted down, there were formed many streams of pure silver. Now, the natives were ignorant of the use of the silver, and the Phoenicians, as they pursued their commercial enterprises and learned of what had taken place, purchased the silver in exchange for other wares of little, if any, worth. And this was the reason why the Phoenicians, as they transported this silver to Greece and Asia and to all other peoples, acquired great wealth. So far, indeed, did the merchants go in their greed that in case their boats were fully laden and there still remained a great amount of silver, they would hammer the lead off the anchors and have the silver perform the service of the lead. And the result was that the Phoenicians, as in the course of many years they prospered greatly, thanks to commerce of this kind, sent many forth colonies, some to Sicily and its neighboring islands, and others to Libya, Sardinia, and Iberia. Now, despite his unabashed exaggeration and his typically Greek disdain for the Phoenician merchants, Diodorus is right to make the point that Iberia was a region immensely rich in natural resources, particularly silver. 
The earliest Tyrians appear to have begun making expeditions as far west as the Pillars of Hercules, back even near 900 BCE. It was around this time that the cultures present on the southern portion of the Iberian Peninsula had reached a level of economic sophistication high enough to become attractive to the Phoenicians and their quest for economic opportunity. The study surrounding the native populations on the Iberian Peninsula is one that's at the forefront of current archaeological work in Spain and the surrounding area. There's a wealth of material that's already been found there, with more being unearthed all the time. To an understandable degree, this work has focused closely on the native populations and how the arrival of a foreign trade power may have influenced the local development and industry. That subject's interesting and important, but I'm going to focus a bit more closely on the Phoenicians themselves and their trade network, along with the major pieces of that network. As I said, they appear to have arrived in the far west sometime in the early 9th century BCE. In the century or so that followed, the Phoenicians began to settle in native populations along the southern coast of the region we know as Andalusia. Beginning further east, still within the confines of the Mediterranean. We've already seen how the Phoenician sites that were independent colonies largely aligned with the characteristics of most other Phoenician sites. They were founded at river mouths and near natural resource deposits, making them miniature echoes of the mother city Tyre. This pattern held true for the most part as Phoenician settlements pushed west through the Pillars of Hercules and began to take root along the Atlantic coast of southern Iberia, though this trickle out into the Atlantic regions would come a bit later. The list of sites that later grew to relatively large sizes is surprising. I'll summarize here briefly to give you an idea of where the Phoenicians ended up, but much of their expansion into the Atlantic didn't occur later, or until the 7th century BCE, so we will talk a bit more about those in due time. Their major sites included places like Mantilla, Malaga, Huelva, even Lixas on the western coast of modern-day Morocco, and the island of Mogador, almost 400 miles south of Gibraltar, along the West African coast. These sites were all important to the Phoenician foothold in the far western reaches of the Mediterranean, to be sure. Huelva, in particular, shows marvelous evidence of the typical situation that emerged in the area. The site was an already existing port in use by the natives. They'd already instituted procedures for mining and processing the local silver and iron ore. There's archaeological evidence of almost industrial-scale smelting furnaces and works. As the Phoenicians did across the Mediterranean, they arrived, they connected with the source and they brought it to a ready market back in the Levant and the surrounding connected areas there. Before long, the Huelvans were pumping out the metal ingots, and the Phoenician merchants were making round trips between Spain and the Levant. To the Iberian Peninsula, they would bring shiploads of jewels, ivory, bronze, glass, ornate pottery and dyed cloth, all of the wealth of the Levant, Egypt, Asia Minor, and Greece. Such rare items were readily traded for in Iberia, and the rich source of silver and iron was also readily parted with by the locals, leaving the Phoenicians in possession of a commodity that was much desired all around the Mediterranean and further east and south, like I said. The Phoenician merchants had cornered the silver market, you might say. And as Diodorus recounted earlier, this was one of the most important parts behind their success. 
In a bit, we will look at how they went about keeping a firm grip on their dominance of the silver market in the Mediterranean. First, though, we need to make a pit stop in Cadiz. Now, just as Tyre had emerged to lead the pack back in the Levant when the Phoenicians were first taking over the merchant game, Cadiz would emerge to become foremost among the western colonies. It was able to lay claim to that title thanks in large part to its amazing location. The Phoenicians certainly had an eye for the locations that would make for an effective port colony. Now, at first glance, the location they chose for the colony doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. Yes, it made total sense on a local level. It was at the end of a lengthy, narrow promontory. Inside this landform was a beautifully enormous natural harbor, and the city's location on the promontory meant that it had water on three sides, easily defensible, yet easily accessible for our Phoenician seafarers. The Phoenicians themselves knew this city as Hadir, G-A-D-I-R, and in their language this word meant something along the lines of stronghold or fortress. However good a location this might have been, it was still over 2,000 miles away from Tyre. But the distance was ultimately outweighed in Tyrian eyes by the city's other feature. The harbor was situated at the terminus of the Guadalete River, a river that runs inland for about a hundred miles. Combine this perfect harbor with a river that provides access to the ore mines of inland Tartessos, and you get the classic Phoenician city. In the case of Hotter, it was also very close to the Guadalquivir River, the largest navigable river in Andalusia, and the main connection between the inland resources and the Iberian coast. In this ideal location, with access to two main rivers, the city of Hadar quickly grew to become the western hub of Phoenician trade. Tyre, naturally, stood as the eastern hub. Connecting these two major ports were literally hundreds of smaller Phoenician settlements strung along the coasts of the Mediterranean and its island formations. In Andalusia particularly, a Phoenician settlement could be found every 10 kilometers or so. Many of these smaller locales were self-sustaining to a large degree, although they did each do their part to contribute their local material or product to the greater trade network. The density of Phoenician sites, especially in the West, can probably be attributed to their very strong efforts to keep their trade network insulated from influence by outside cultures, especially the Greeks, as time will go on here. The expanse of this chain of trade meant that more links in the chain were necessary to keep it strong. Try to keep this chain analogy in mind later on, because once the network was fully stretched across the entirety of the Mediterranean, it quickly became apparent that some central support was much needed to keep the chain from breaking. Back to Hodder for now, though. The concerted Phoenician trade presence led to the founding of the city of Hodder itself, the earliest traces of the city structures being generally dated to the middle of the 9th century, so 850 BCE. As there always is, some debate accompanies this date, but 850 to 825 is a span that generally has more backers at our present time in archaeological work. Part of the problem in relation to accurately dating Cadiz is that the modern city grew up right on top of the Roman sites, which were themselves built atop the ancient Mos city. So this stratification complicates modern studies that hope to reach the bottom most layers. 
In recent excavations, Phoenician burials have been found, dated to the late 7th century BCE, but it's thought that these date to a period well after the city's founding. Because of this archaeological situation in Cadiz, few deductions can be made. But based on the archaeology of other nearby sites, uh, sites like Toscanos, which lies in Malaga, we can deduce a thing or two. The main deduction we can base on the city structures and layout from nearby sites. From the very beginning, these cities consisted of large and relatively luxurious houses, almost all of which were laid out on an organized grid of streets. The dating given to these houses, in addition to the dating of remains in the city's graveyards, can help us indicate that the founding of these colonies in the West, by and large, was carried out by well-prepared people, a contingent of the colonizing population. It wasn't done simply by sailors or explorers who erected crude dwellings and waited for others to eventually join them. It's possible that this happened at some locations, the very first out of the settlement sites, and further archaeological work may shift this supposition in another direction. But given the Phoenicians' maritime capabilities and their knowledge of the material wealth in the West, it would be quite reasonable to see the colonization process as being very organized and carried out on a large scale from pretty early on in the process. The largest scale of all in that process belonged to the city of Hodder, a place which presents a few interesting points from the broad view. If you remember back to episode 22, you might recall that I mentioned the Phoenician god Melkart in relation to Tyre's myths surrounding the origin of their city, but also the overall Phoenician view of their relationship with the sea itself. Religion undoubtedly played a role in state control of trade in the east and around Tyre, but as we move further west, further outside any direct Tyrian state control, the role of religion becomes a bit more interesting. You see, Colonies that were closer to the mother city of Tyre often had governors who were dispatched to oversee the colony and its place in the grand scheme of trade. More direct control was just easier when you knew that the preeminent city wasn't too far distant to exert some direct control when they had to. Hodder and many other colonies in the west instead fell under the sway of commercial agents who were appointed by Tyre's king to function as governors, but not to act in that official capacity. Maintenance of trade was their main focus, and as semi-autonomous overseers are wont to do when overseeing from a great distance, they tended to become more independent than their counterparts closer to Tyre. It doesn't seem that the Tyrian kings necessarily minded this setup. They realized that merchant princes were driven by the lure of profit, and that this would keep them more in line than any direct control would. All the king needed, though, was a means by which he could exert a symbolic control such that the emphasis always pointed to the mother city's connection with the colony. With that emphasis in place, the mother colony would always benefit from the merchant network, or at least, the decisions would be made with the mother city's benefit in mind. This symbolic control is where the Phoenician religion comes into play, particularly in Hodder. In this city's origin myths, just like those of the mother city, a god or oracle is the main impetus for the decision to found a colony at the precise location where Hodder took root. In Strabo's geography, 
He tells this story that after receiving a command from the Oracle to found a new colony near the Pillars of Hercules, Tyre dispatched sailors. These sailors roved the area near the Straits of Gibraltar. They made shore at locations that appeared amenable to their purpose. Each time, though, they offered sacrifice to the Oracle, and owing to the unfavorable result of their offerings, they abandoned the proposed site and moved on to the next one on the list. Supposedly, on attempt number three, the oblation was favorable to the oracle, and the site was founded. Strabo may be way off on his dating. He says that Hodder was founded in 1100 BCE. But he appears to have gotten the religious connection to the city right at the core. He said that one of the first acts undertaken by the Tyrian colonizers was to build a temple. After some debate about whether the Pillars of Hercules contained or ever were themselves actual physical pillars, Strabo then gives some description of the Phoenician temple at Hodder. In the ancient tradition, Hodder's temple to Melkart was enormous, spanning the entire eastern half of the island promontory where the colony was founded. Despite sitting on this landmass that jutted between the Atlantic Ocean and the harbor, the temple contained a famous freshwater pool. It was also reputed as a possible location for the actual Pillars of Hercules. Strabo compared the theories of various ancient historians as to what the Pillars were. Some said that they were mountains in Iberia and on the North African coast, pillars on either side of the strait. Others said that they were just land masses that formed the strait itself. Strabo then says, quote, Others pretend that they are the pillars of brass, eight cubits high, in the temple of Hercules at Hadar, on which is inscribed the cost of erecting that edifice. And the sailors coming there on the completion of their voyage and sacrificing to Hercules rendered the place so famous that it came to be regarded as the termination of the land and sea. Posidonius thinks this view the most probable of all, and looks upon the oracle and the several expeditions as a Phoenician invention. In any event, it is quite clear that the presence of such a vast temple to Melkart in Hodder was symbolic. It was a grand physical and mental representation to the Phoenicians that, for all intents and purposes, Hodder was the anchor of the western colonies. The fact that a temple to Melkart also stood entire is really just more evidence of the strong link between Tyre and Hodder, and both of these cities' place in the Tyrian trade network. This link is, in my view at least, confirmed by the account of Herodotus, that upon his visit to the temple in Tyre, he, quote, saw two pillars in it, one of refined gold, the other of emerald so magnificent that it glowed in the dark. The worship of Melkart at Hodder and the various rites undertaken in the temple contain in them some intriguing connections to the sea as well. For one, we must consult with Philostratus, a Greek writer and philosopher who wrote around 200 AD, during the time of the Roman Empire. In what is perhaps his most well-known surviving work, he tells of the life and journeys of Apollonius of Tyana, a man who was a Pythagorean philosopher and teacher during the first century. Without going into too great of detail behind the book, or who Apollonius was, I'll just say that Philostratus was examining the various beliefs of Apollonius and where he got them. 
in talking about the ocean tides and what exactly caused them to be the ancient theories about ocean tides, Philostratus alludes to Hodder and says that there the Gaudetians believed that while the ocean tide was high, the souls of the sick wouldn't depart from their bodies, that people would only die of sickness during the time of low tide. An interesting spiritual belief, but evidence of how the Tyrians and the Gaudetians viewed the body and spirit in connection with the cycles of the ocean. Perhaps the most interesting of Phoenician religious rites in connection with the sea involves their god Melkart and their typically Semitic rituals to celebrate, maybe even instigate the resurrection of Melkart following the annual rainy season. The Greeks called this ritual the agersis, which meant something akin to a rising up from sleep or death, and it typically involved an actual cremation of the god in effigy. Fire was viewed by them as a means by which to awaken the god from death and into immortality. Because the agersis happened on an annual basis at the beginning of spring, the ritual takes on a decidedly agrarian connotation. This springtime agricultural association is perhaps what we would normally assume to be an ancient spring ritual and what it would typically be connected with. But Melkart was also associated closely with the sea, maybe more so than with anything else an association that found its way into this rite of the Egersus. Ancient accounts of the ritual indicate that all foreigners were expelled from Hodder on the day of the ritual, so as to preserve the sanctity of the great ceremony. An account retold by the Greek geographer Pausanias paints a rather enigmatic picture of how those foreigners viewed the Phoenician religious rituals. A foreigner present at Cadiz told how he and his companions left the city on the ritual day, and, quote, on their return to Cadiz they found cast ashore a man of the sea, who was about five roods in size, and burning away, because heaven had blasted him with a thunderbolt. Now, in all likelihood, this burning man of the sea was probably the effigy of Melkart, and in Cadiz, they put this effigy to sea on a raft and burned it to complete the ritual. Therefore, despite the possible agrarian origins of the rite, the Phoenicians at Hodder, and probably those in other cities, connected the sea with Melkart. He was, after all, the Phoenician god of the sea. Later coins, from much later when Phoenicians actually started using coins, but later coins depict him astride a hippocamp, which is the mythological sea-horse-type creature that's typically depicted as half-horse, half-fish. I put up a picture of one of these coins on the website if you want to see what it looks like. As much as the Phoenician temples of Melkart symbolized their connection with the sea and served as religious icons, it can be argued that the temple served as the most important common element in the Phoenician colonization of the Mediterranean. In her very comprehensive book about the Phoenicians, probably the most comprehensive work on their expansion and role in the ancient world so far, Archaeologist and historian Maria Albert describes the central role that the Temple of Melkart played in controlling the trade and economy of the Phoenician colonies. To put it simply, when the economic concepts of fair trade, uniform weight measure across great spans of territory, and just an overall disdain for fraud, when these ideas are melded to the more sacred and imposing ideas contained in the worship of a god like Melkart, then the violation of the commercial norms becomes much more weighty 
it's essentially then also treated as a transgression against the deity and the temple. In a very literal sense, then, in ancient Hodder, the temple of Melkart was also the commercial center. The god protected the weights and measures, the quality of merchandise bought and sold. The temple even kept a register of transactions if the merchants desired them to be written down. Notably, the ancient Phoenicians were very slow to adopt minted coinage. They didn't do so until long after the Greeks had done. But their reticence to adopt coinage owed to this fact, that the temple controlled trade and ensured many of the same outcomes that a uniform coinage would have also ensured. Business deals were often sealed by the swearing of oaths to the god, and the temple also utilized hallmarks to guarantee the purity and weight of the metal bars or ingots that were basically the Phoenician currency. Their wealth of metal resources also seems to have played a role in their slow adoption of coinage. They had no need to go to the smaller minted coins. Metal bars were readily available. In return for functioning as a trade regulator, the temple received taxes and dues from the merchant class. This religio-commercial marriage was also present in other main port cities on the trade routes, places like Cyprus, Malta, and Nora. In some, and in the words of historian Albert, quote, in distant places where Melkart possessed the temple, his function was a very concrete one, to ensure the tutelage of the Temple of Tyre and the monarchy over the commercial enterprise, thus converting the colony into an extension of Tyre, and also to guarantee the right of asylum and hospitality, which, in distant lands, was equivalent to endorsing contracts and commercial exchanges. In ancient parallel, that's seen in other trade empires down through history, a uniform religion acted as the glue that held the vast network together and facilitated its trade and profit. Now, I haven't really touched on it much, but there's one thing here that I think is worth noting in relation to the Phoenicians and their relationship with the locals of the Iberian Peninsula. Obviously, the word colony carries with it a lot of modern baggage. Use of the word itself immediately colors the perception of what was going on as the Tyrian merchants arrived in the west and proceeded to set up settlements and cities that shipped the local resources back east. In his book, The Great Sea, Cambridge professor of Mediterranean history, David Abulafia, explains that the relationship between the Phoenician colonists and the Tartesian natives was by no means an exploitative colonial relationship of unfair exchange. Rather, he portrays the natives of Tartessos as, quote, enthusiastically setting to work, extracting and smelting not just silver, but gold and copper at mining centers across southern Spain and Portugal. All of this done under a structure where the local Iberians controlled every facet of production, remaining firmly in control of their own resources, and reaping for themselves a profit from the trade right alongside the Phoenicians, who did the overseas transport of the end product. So as we move toward wrapping things up today, let's try to place the city of Hodder within the broader context of Phoenician colonization, and then we'll see how events that transpired back in the Levant had an effect upon the Mediterranean network of trade. The city that we now call Cadiz was founded during a period of history where the Assyrian Empire experienced a slight decline. Between 830 and 750 BCE or so, the period when many of the western colonies saw their true start and flower, the domineering empire that had pushed the Phoenicians to expand west 
began to let off the gas a little bit. The Phoenicians were also helped in their push west by the fact that they had tapped into the wealth of mineral resources that was needed to sate what greed the Assyrian beast still possessed in this time span. The rapid expansion of Tyre's trade network in the west was a very great success. Assyria probably was also happy with the wealth that was coming back their way, and it's possible that the Phoenicians grew comfortable as the years ticked off and the calendar pages fell off screen in this little scene where time speeds up and we jump forward to the next major narrative point. As we reach that point, we are going to start to witness a more harrowing scene in the homeland of the Phoenicians. Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III has decided to depart from the precedent of the kings who ruled before him. He decided that despite the hefty tributes that were still flowing in from Tyre, that he now wants to possess them for his own. His predecessors had continued to observe the unspoken agreement where the Assyrians would leave Phoenicia be in return for tribute from their merchant network. But in the 730s BCE, Tiglath-Pileser III marched his armies to the coast and seized control of a fair few cities. On the face of things, he technically left Tyre her independence, there wasn't a military occupation of the city. In reality, he began to exercise more control over her trade by sending in customs officials and inspectors to tax and oversee the import of certain items important to Assyria. These items were things like cedar wood and the enforcement of a trade embargo with Egypt, who had until this point been a main trade partner of Tyre. Remember, one of the two major harbors of Tyre was actually called the Egyptian Harbor, so this cut in trade with Egypt must have had a distinct impact on Tyre's trade. Now, in spite of this decidedly negative impact that Assyrian movement had on Tyre and Sidon, the developments of the late 8th century did result in a few Assyrian depictions of Phoenician ships, even if those depictions were all made in Assyrian palaces as a show of their glee at having essentially cast the Phoenician cities under their shadow. One wall relief from the Palace of Sargon II shows Phoenician ships towing timber, perhaps the cedar wood that was affected by the tax overseers. The ships appear to be of the same style as those that we saw last time depicted on the Tel Balawat gates over a century earlier. Both depictions show flat-bottomed ships bearing horse-head figureheads, and the ships are being propelled by rowers with oars. The next two depictions, though, are the most detailed depictions of Phoenician ships from so late a date, from right around 700 BCE. To make things even better, the depictions include both merchant ships and a few Phoenician warships, so let's describe them a bit here, and then you can check out their website to view the images for more detail. The first I'll mention is a depiction of a lone warship, a fragment of a larger wall panel relief from an Assyrian palace in Nineveh. This depiction is normally dated to around 700 BCE, and the warship it depicts seems to be of the same type as those depicted in the second image that I'll mention here in a moment. The warship itself is powered by rowers, there appears to be two levels of rowers with oars. The upper level of rowers are shown with their heads visible through an open portion with what almost looks like windows. They have oars in their hands, but a second lower level of oars are lined up beneath them. The handles disappear into what 
we can assume to be ore ports, with a bottom tier of rowers probably sitting invisible in the lowest portion of the ship's hull. Then, above the top tier of rowers is a third level, a raised platform on which stand passengers and armed men. In the depiction, this top level is set apart from the rowers beneath by a series of alternating plane and cross-hatched panels, above which are hung a row of circular shields. Ultimately, it's difficult to reach a firm conclusion based on only these two-dimensional warship depictions. They could be triremes, but they could just as easily be biremes with a raised catwalk-type platform above the ship's main hull and rowing stations. In the end, the most notable feature of the warships is the pointed ram affixed to the ship's bow. Vertical incisions seem to depict ropes which were used to lash the ram to the ship's hull. So, in these depictions, we have an early evidence of the ram-equipped warships that we will encounter with much more frequency during the Greek and Roman periods. The second interesting depiction from this period carries a bit more weight, I think. It comes from the palace of Sennacherib, who ruled between 705 and 681 BCE. His rule began about two decades after Tiglath-Pileser, who was the one responsible for the increase in Assyrian aggression. As the cities around Tyre and Sidon were engulfed by Assyrian control one by one in the years after 730, the main Phoenician cities felt the figurative noose tighten. They still had their connection with the trade route that had unfurled westward, but as the cities of the Levant came under Assyrian control, some of them revolted. The military might of Assyria put down the rebellions with ease, of course. The Assyrian king then put Tyre under siege between 724 and 720. The Assyrians also took control of the island of Cyprus for a couple years, using ships that they had taken from subjugated Phoenician cities. When Sennacherib took the throne in 705, though, he put Tyre under siege again. And this is the scene that's depicted in Sennacherib's palace. On the right hand of the image stands the city of Tyre, devoid of its people save for one figure on the dock. This man is helping the final evacuee get into a merchant ship. The image has been lost since its discovery, but the archaeologist who discovered it in 1848 drew a copy of the relief, so that's what we have to go on. To the left of Tyre and the dock lays the city's harbor, and in the harbor are 12 Phoenician ships containing the king of Tyre, a man named Luli, his family, his royal house, and other citizens and soldiers of the evacuating city. In the harbor are six warships of the same basic style that we described a minute ago. But in the second depiction, the warships also have a mast, stepped, or raised amidships. The masts are outfitted with stays and are also braced from the yardarm. Finally, there are sails furled to the yard, so the indication seems focused more on the evacuation of the city and not necessarily on the voyage that they undertook after emptying out the city. Maybe it's a bit of gloating from Sennacherib that he forced them to abandon their great city. In addition to the warships, which also have rams on the bow, I should add, there are six merchant or cargo ships. These have extremely curved hulls and symmetrical raised ends. Their cargo ships, assumedly, 
and they may be the Galois ships that were described by the Greeks. We talked about them last time. Remember that they had adopted this word to describe the Phoenician cargo ships because they were deep-hulled, shaped like bathtubs, as the word indicates. The deep hulls may have been intended to store the maximum possible amount of silver, iron, and amphora, but in 701, when Tyre's king and a major portion of the city evacuated to Cyprus, they were probably packing as many people as they could into those same holds. The Tyrian king's exile wasn't permanent, but as the 7th century BCE dawned, Assyria continued its work to curtail Tyrian independence as much as it possibly could without technically assuming rulership of the city. I don't want to get too far down the line in talking about how the Assyrian Empire continued to control the Levant, but from the 730s when Tiglath-Pileser began Assyria's renewed aggression, down to the middle of the 7th century, Assyria refrained from subjugating Tyre herself. Access to her vast network of colonies and the attendant trade network was the entire point of Assyria's continued policy toward Tyre. They knew that they couldn't dismantle the symbolic control that Tyre and her god exercised over the colonies. This was the glue that held it all together, as we mentioned. From 730 onward, though, their gradually increasing functional control over Tyre's trade in the east, over her access to ports, over her ability to trade with Egypt, all of these regulations and restrictions enforced by Assyria began to wither Tyre's status as the preeminent Phoenician city. At the same time, the western trade network continued to flourish. This situation that emerged in the late 8th and early 7th centuries BCE would have one major outcome. At least, we know that now, looking back on how it all played out. With the Western network continuing to funnel the wealth of Iberia back east, Tyre was able to survive in spite of Assyria's meddling. However, in the center of the long Mediterranean route, one specific colony had begun to eclipse almost all others. This rise was partially due to location. It was in the middle of the east-west trade route between Tyre and Hodder. But this colony also lay at the southern end of a north-south route between northern Africa and the regional network around the Tyrrhenian Sea, the one we introduced last time. This is where I want to conclude today before we really begin to focus on a city that plays a major role for the next several centuries of history in the Mediterranean and in just overall maritime history as well. I'm sure you guessed it at the top of the episode, but here it is for you just in case. The colony that had begun as just another colony in the Great Tyrian Network was called by the Phoenicians Kart Hadasht, or New City. In the Latin, this morphed into Carthago, and now we know her simply as Carthage. Just a couple items as we close today. First, I will be conducting a book giveaway contest via the website and the Facebook and Twitter pages, so check out those places for details. The giveaway is going to remain open for four weeks following the start of the window, Check the website for the specific start, but I think four weeks is plenty of time for everyone who wants to take part to be able to get involved. This time the giveaway goes global, so any person in any country to which Amazon ships is eligible to enter. The method of entry is also simple. All you need to do is leave a review of the podcast on the podcast platform of your choice. iTunes is most prevalent still but any others are fine by me as well. In addition, if you don't use a standard podcatcher to listen, 
All you need to do is tell a friend or acquaintance about the podcast. Share it on Facebook with all of your friends. Just help us grow the crew a little bit. After you've done just one of those two options, and this includes those of you who've already left a review at any point in the past, just email me or message me on the Facebook and Twitter page. Let me know that you've done so and you're in. I will contact the ultimate winner via the same method that they used to contact me, so make sure the method you use is a reliable one. I do suppose that you want to know what the book is, though, huh? This time we have a smallish volume by Richard Dunn, a book called Navigational Instruments. Dunn is a senior curator at Royal Museums Greenwich, the Fourfold Museum Group in London, of which the National Maritime Museum is a part. And boy, I hope I can visit that museum someday in my lifetime. It looks awesome. Anyway, the volume that I'm giving away focuses on the scientific and historic importance of navigational instruments to the development of maritime travel, particularly as it relates to the famed voyages of discovery. After the author introduces the perils of maritime navigation, he outlines basic instruments, things like the lead and line, the compass, the log and line that marked the ship's speed in knots. These examples are just the beginning, though, and the rest of the book outlines and describes the functions of more sophisticated and revolutionary instruments. The astrolabe, progress in chart-making and cartography, the discovery and standardization of the system of longitude, and the sextant. All these only occupy the book's first half. With the advent of mechanical measuring machines, radio, electronic and digital navigation all occupying the book's second part. All in all, this rather small book, it's about 90 pages or so, is a handy introduction to the basic function and importance of navigational instruments, and Dunn fits them well into their, their historical context also. Again, visit the show notes page for today's episode for the complete details on how to enter the giveaway. Finally today, a big thank you to those who've left reviews in the recent past and who've joined the crew in helping support the podcast. A doff of my cap to Sandra for joining the crew through our website membership, and further gratitude to both Rasmus and Andrea, or Andrea, not really sure, I always guess wrong there, but thank you to both of you for pledging to support the podcast on Patreon. It's awesome to see the crew continue to grow, and I guess I can only dream that perhaps someday I'll be able to captain our ship here full-time if the support grows to that point. In addition to our new crew members, I also want to thank those of you who left a review. iTunes reviews are the next best thing you can do behind supporting us. They help keep us afloat on the ever-fickle iTunes charts. So thanks to Chris MVB. Jay Terra of Germany, and Elijah Fairfax in the lovely land of Ayer. I really appreciated the words from each of you, and I'll continue to try and improve the content and incorporate things that are mentioned in the reviews. Next time, we will focus our attention on a port city in northern Africa, the new city that would eventually rise to take over the trade network. We'll look at the founding of Carthage, her origin myths, and her early role in the Mediterranean. As we move closer to a focus on the Punic period, though, we'll also have to work in the role that the early Greeks and the mysterious Etruscans played in the Aegean, around Italy, and on the major islands like Sicily and the others. This will, of course, clutter the stage a bit but it should also open the way for a more character-centric narrative as we move closer to a look at classical Greece and Rome. Big things ahead then. Until next time, 
fair winds and following seas. Thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. If you like what you've heard, please visit the website for more info, helpful maps and images, plus membership options. Also, please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Reviews are the lifeblood of podcasts and help keep us near the top of the charts where other people are more likely to find us and catch the maritime history bug. Oh, and if your plans for today include shopping on Amazon, just take 10-15 extra seconds to visit the podcast website, scroll to the bottom of any page, and click on the Amazon orange banner. Then, just shop like normal and support the podcast by doing so. Nothing changes for you, but we get a small percentage of every purchase you make through that banner. A simple, free way to support maritime history in podcast form. Thank you so much, everyone. It makes a huge difference to independent podcast producers like me. I hope you'll join me next time and every time thereafter as we progress through the stories of maritime history here on the Maritime History Podcast.